good morning, everyone. I am uh, Pastor Caleb. Uh, if we have not met, that's who I am. Hi. And if you are joining us online, I welcome you as well. Uh, this morning, we are starting a new series called This Is The Way. Uh, for those of you who are Star Wars fans, hopefully this gets you a little geeked. Um, if you have been watching the Mandalorian TV show on Disney+, Plus, oftentimes when uh, the Mandalorians do something that is distinctly Mandalorian, that everyone who's not Mandalorian looks around like, what are they doing? They say to, them, so they say, they say to one another, this is the way, this is the way. As Christians, we have some distinctives, some things that we distinctly believe that oftentimes do not uh, make a whole lot of sense to the people around us, and it is our way. Um, so we will be uh, the, together here for the next few weeks uh, talking about the creeds that shape what we believe. Um, and uh, this morning, uh, let's, let's begin by reciting together the Apostles' Creed. All right. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. On the third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father, from will he to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Tyler, if you can bring back the very first slide that I believe in uh, God the Father Almighty. Um, I, I got to tell you guys, I could change one thing about our creedal tradition. Just for clarity's sake, I wish after I believe in God, we had a colon rather than a comma. Because I think one of the things that can get confusing is thinking about the Trinity in terms of God, the Father, so instead of thinking Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we can think God, Son, Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? Has anyone ever kind of struggled with that, like making sense of that? Maybe. Um, and, you know, the, the survey data uh, confirms that. Like there are many, many Christians in this country who uh, struggle with this notion of is Jesus God? And I think in part it's because of, of some lack of clarity there um, in thinking about how the Father and the Son and the Spirit together make up the Godhead. And I mean, I'm not going to lie, it is, a, uh, it is a difficult concept to think about how you have three persons that make up one God, that have the same substance but are different in their being. Um, the, the best analogy I have seen, and I confess it is not perfect. I can already hear uh, Hans from Lutheran satire whispering in my ear, that's bordering on partialism, Patrick. 
You're the worst, Patrick. Okay, you all need to go home and watch St. Patrick's Bad Analogies on YouTube. Find it. It's worth your time. Um, uh, can you play for me a genus? Okay. That was a G note. Now can you play for me a B note? That's a B note. Now can you play for me a D note? Okay, you notice how they didn't sound the same? Yeah, they, 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 are, they are steps apart. Um, the reason why is because music, as we hear it, noise, as we hear it, it's, it's sound waves. So each note has a distinct sound wave. It hits our ear with a distinct wave. And so if a G is doing this, the B is doing this a little bit differently, and the D still yet differently, but they are all sound waves hitting our ear, but they're all different, but they're all made up of the same stuff, air moving. Now, can you play them together? But they exist in harmony. That's a G major chord. Now, now what happens, Rosemary, if, if we move the G from the root and put the B in the root, but still play those three notes? Still sounds good. Hey, how about the D now? Still the same three notes. Still sounds good. And uh, this is this is not what the Trinity is, but this is a helpful picture for understanding the way the Trinity operates. Because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they are equal. It's not this idea that God the Father is sort of on top of the pyramid and then the Son and the Holy Spirit are kind of under the Father and then everything else kind of flows out from that. They, they are equal. Um, and, and we get this. The Nicene Creed does a little better job of talking about it in, in the Chalcedonian as well. But now that we have all that stuff about understanding the Trinity... Oh, we have a question. Okay. So, you have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, right? Right. Yeah. Okay, I, I think I, I see what you're saying. Okay, yeah, that, that makes sense. I mean, when the Romans put Father Almighty in parentheses, it explains who that God is, who made heaven and earth. God, Jesus, did not make heaven and earth. Ooh, ooh, but he did. That's exactly what John 1 tells us. <laughs> See, this is hard. This is good. Like, we can, we can look at this and, and try to better understand because it's, you know, we are, we are talking about um, words that give us life, words that shape our world, but words that were written a long time ago in a place far, far away. Like the Star Wars reference? Can you imagine any three human beings that was in such harmony as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost? No, I cannot. I 
Yeah. So our, our first scripture today uh, comes from Genesis chapter 1. And we read that in the beginning, God created heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good and separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And then we know what happens. And picking back up in verse 26, and then God said, make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, and they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground... Everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. And thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. And by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all of his work. And then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So when we talk about father as or the father as the creator of heaven and earth, um, it is it is this deep conviction that we have that all of life on this planet exists by the word of God. You know, Hebrews goes on to, to say this, this exact thing, that, that for us, as we think about why there is something instead of nothing, it's because when God speaks, things happen. And God has spoken the world into existence. So we live in this world that's been spoken into existence and sustained by the good pleasure of God. Um, Phil Talon, who wrote the, uh, the uh, confirmation curriculum that our confirmands used, um, he, he had a, a description that I found incredibly helpful. So, um, so in your minds right now, I'd like you to imagine a cat. Any cat. Just, you know, it could be a tabby cat, it could be a tomcat, it could be a calico cat. It could be a tiger, but any cat. It's cat, so long as we have it pictured in our minds, continues to exist, but at some point we're going to get tired of thinking about this cat, and it will go out of existence. But God never gets tired of us. God continues 
to sustain creation, God continues to keep there being something instead of nothing because he loves us and cares about us and loves that we are here, loves that we get to be in relationship with him. Our next passage this morning comes from the book of Isaiah. In chapter 44, we read that this is what the Lord says, your Redeemer who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord, the maker of all things, who stretches out the heavens, who spreads out the earth by myself, who foils the signs of false prophets and makes fools of diviners, who overthrows the learning of the wise and turns it into nonsense, who carries out the words of his servants and fulfills the predictions of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited. On the towns of Judah, they shall be rebuilt. In their ruins, I will restore them. Who says to the watery deep, be dry, and I will dry up your streams. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt. And of the temple, let its foundations be laid. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of, to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you. I will level the mountains. I will break down the gates of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you hidden treasures, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me. So that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. This passage is hard. It's hard. Because you know who Cyrus is? He's the king of Persia. The same Persians who are enslaving the children of Israel. And God says, Cyrus is who I, have, who I have raised up for this moment. You know, so often, um, you know, we can get into this, this sort of place that says, why is it that good things happen to bad people? Or, or why is it that even though I'm doing what I'm supposed to, I'm just, I'm not getting ahead the way I want to? Well, this is not a new reality. Isaiah is to the people of Israel, the words of God, and God is saying, hey, Cyrus is not in charge because I have failed. I chose him. Which is incredibly hard to hear. 
It's incredibly hard to hear that God will choose to discipline his people to raise up foreign rulers even though they don't acknowledge that God is who he says he is. This is a hard passage. It would be much easier if... um, I mean, I don't even know if I'd say it's easier, but it would be, it would feel different if it was, you know, guys, I've got this taken care of. Yeah, Cyrus is, you know, he's just kind of doing his thing, but we're going to knock him down. It's going to be great. I'm going to, you know, take care of that Persian God, and we will be back on top again. But that's, that's not the way that the writers frame the relationship of God to creation. Because here in, you know, here at the time of Isaiah, the basic assumption about the way the world works is that every country is, has its, you know, king, monarch, emperor, whatever. But then there is a God that is, that is orienting life in that country. So that if uh, the armies of Israel are to meet the armies of the Philistines, the reason why you can just send out Goliath and send out David to the battle and not have everyone go at it is because the God who wins in the higher realm is going to be the person who wins on the battlefield. This is the assumption of the ancient world. But Isaiah says that assumption is wrong. It is not that the God of Israel is just another God out here battling with the neighboring gods to see who will be the supreme God of the region. What Isaiah is saying is that no, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has dominion and control over everything. There is nothing that happens that surprises God. There is nothing that happens that is outside of God's uh, intention for the region. And these are incredibly difficult words if you've been taken into captivity. That it's not that your God wasn't strong enough so you've been taken into captivity but that God has chosen to send you into captivity on purpose. That God has a bigger plan in place that you need to go and live this life that you don't want to live in order to be shaped and changed and transformed to be able to come back and do what you've been called to. You know, here, um, here in the United States, like we have this this deep lament about uh, church attendance being in decline. You know, especially you get around people in my industry. I get around my colleagues. It's like, oh, you know, people just aren't going to church like they were 30 years ago or 60 years ago or whatever. And it's almost as if 
what I am hearing some of my colleagues say is that God is losing. That in our culture, God is just losing. We have all these things happening that are, are bad and that are counter to the gospel. Our, our churches don't have as many people in them as they used to. Why is God losing? But in light of what Isaiah is saying, in light of what we're seeing in other places in the Bible, I think it's a wrong-headed assumption to say that God is losing right now. It's probably more accurate to say that we are being pruned. We are being corrected. We, as the people of God, are experiencing a time where... where um, where things aren't, uh, aren't going the way that maybe we think they should be going because God is doing something bigger and better. Because there, there have been things about our culture that have boiled up and been exposed as also being counter-gospel. So we are in a season where God is correcting, where God is bringing healing through what looks like losing. But that doesn't make it easy. It was hard for the people of Israel to hear these words of Isaiah. And it should be hard for us. You know, as we continue to faithfully try to figure out what it is to be a disciple of Jesus, to live in a way that's faithful, knowing that we are in a cultural moment where that is not popular is hard. That we are not, uh, we, we do not hold to a majority opinion in 2021 is hard. That we will be facing moments in our lives where the things that we believe about God will put us in conflict with neighbors and neighbors who are more powerful than us is hard. But as we choose to believe that God was in control during the times of during the times of Old Testament captivity, and God is in control even now, we can take confidence in the reality that none of this is surprising God. None of it. None of this is outside of, of God's control. None of this is happening in a way that God can't use it to further refine and transform and shape His people for the purpose of His kingdom. So this should be encouraging to us. Yeah, it's, it's true. Our sort of wider American culture, counter-gospel in a whole lot of different ways. 
But history has shown us, especially theological history has shown us, that God uses moments like this to refine his people. To cut away the fluff and the chafe and the stuff that has made it so that we are are less faithful than we should be. And that on the back side, we'll be much better off and much more ready to live in a way that is faithful and, um, and that exposes the kingdom of God all around us. So we've talked about some, uh, some unique stuff today. So if, there's, if there are like questions you have, that, this is why Sri and I are doing the Second Pot podcast. Like, go ahead and just send them in. Um, you know, in addition, uh, I've said this before, I'm going to say it again. I am wrong at least 30% of the time, but I don't know what 30% it is. But I'm trying to be as right as I can be, right? All right, uh, our final text today comes from Acts chapter 14, uh, beginning at verse 8. In Lystra there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking, and Paul looked directly at him. He saw that he had faith to be healed and called out, Stand up on your feet. And at that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates, because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and they rushed into the crowd shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. And even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Humans are designed to worship. We are. We are. We are in such a way that we want to worship something. Here in Lystra, the people wanted to worship Paul and Barnabas because they were doing these amazing acts. They had healed who couldn't walk. We want to worship celebrity. We want to worship money. We want to worship all sorts of things. But the one, the one thing in all the universe that is worthy of worship is God. 
This is the, the, the central claim that we inherit from um, our Jewish forefathers. That in a world of things that will vie for your worship, the only thing worthy of worship is God. Because everything that happens, every good thing that you receive is a blessing from God. In the Old Testament, it wasn't because you sacrificed to Baal at just the right time that the water came. No, the water is a gift from God. In, in, in the New Testament, it's, it's not that, that uh, you know, Paul and Barnabas are actually Zeus and Hermes, so you should worship them. No, we worship God. And in our modern day, it's, it's not that your 401k is doing really well because you're really smart and you figured out when to, when to buy and when to sell and whatever. No, all gifts in all their forms are gifts from God. So we shouldn't worship ourselves. We shouldn't worship others. We shouldn't uh, worship other, uh, other false gods. Our worship is directed towards God. Now the difficulty becomes when we begin comparing ourselves to other people and we say, well, maybe all blessings come from God, but man, God sure has been doing a whole lot more blessing for that guy than he has for me. What's up with that? What's up with that? I mean, I, I think it's, for us, you know, especially, we have a, a tendency as American-type people um, to feel a sense of entitlement for how our lives should be going. Instead of seeing life in and of itself as a gift when things aren't going as well for us as they are for our neighbor, we can get resentful. We can say, why isn't God blessing me the way they're blessing the Joneses? And it's even worse when the Joneses are bad people. Why is God blessing Cyrus? He doesn't even acknowledge God. Right? Right? But part of the way we need to reshape our thinking and reshape our, uh, retrain our brains and retrain our hearts is to, instead of thinking about the blessings of God as some sort of finite thing that, you know, person A gets 10 and person B gets 12 and whatever, it, it, instead if we first recognize that the gift of life in and of itself is so far beyond what we are actually entitled to, and everything else is gravy, this begins to retrain our minds, begins to retrain the way we see the world, because the reality is 
we see what we are looking for. So, uh, a few months ago, I, I told you that I've, I've really been getting into uh, forest management. It's just a, you know, a hobby reading thing. Um, and, and one of my, uh, I mean, this is a small dream, but one of my small dreams, like I, I, uh, I met with a, a state forester this week, and we were talking about forest management, and he was talking about wild grapevines. You know what I'm talking about when I say a wild grapevine? Some of you do. I had never given a wild grapevine a second thought in my life. Like, I didn't know they existed. He's like, yeah, wild grapevines. They go up in the tree, they compete with, you know, the canopy for light and resources, and they suck moisture out of the ground like they're, they're all over the place. And wouldn't you know, after talking to the state forester, I am seeing wild grapevines everywhere. They are everywhere in the state. Everywhere. But a week ago, if you had said a wild grapevine, I'd say, no, I don't think so. Because I didn't know what I was looking for. We see what we are looking for. You know, maybe this happened, um, I know this has also happened to me in the past, when I bought a car. Like, you go to the dealership, you're like, oh, man, I don't think I've ever seen this car on the road. I'm going to be really special. You start driving it that first week, you see 50 of them. Because we see what we're looking for. If we begin looking for the blessings of God in our lives, we will stop caring about the Joneses and what they have. Because we will see that God is blessing us in a multitude of ways. But if instead we're looking for what we don't have, we're going to be miserable. We're going to be resentful. We're going to be bad neighbors. <laughs> so as we go into the world, may we have eyes to see the way God is blessing us. May we be looking for those blessings looking for these little things to be grateful about. These little slices of joy in our day, which can make all the difference. Let's pray. Most holy and great God, we thank you that you have blessed us, that you've chosen us, that you've made us, want to be known by eyes to see the multitude of blessings that you have given us. Rather than having hearts that are constantly comparing ourselves to others, overvaluing the things that someone else has that we don't have, Lord, teach us to recognize and be thankful for that which you've given us. For the gift of life and all the gifts of living as your people. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We pray all this.
in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.